1 Thessalonians chapter 5. As the one preaching this sermon, it should not have taken me that long to find 1 Thessalonians in my Bible, but here we are. <clears throat> Let's go ahead and start by reading the text together. We are in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, starting in verse 15. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all, uh, in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. Amen? Amen. Father, would you please bless us this morning? We are so full of the world. We need to be filled by you. We need your Holy Spirit to give us new life again this morning. So would you do that by the working of your word? We ask in your Son's name and for his glory. Amen. Uh, context is key. When you're listening in on someone else's conversation, if you come in at the wrong time and you don't understand the context of that conversation, you could hear something that might make you wonder, what on earth are these guys talking about? The same thing is true when reading our Bibles. When you read your Bible, having a right understanding of the context of the scriptures that you're reading is supremely important. You must interpret the text in its proper context. So if you have one of those devotionals at home where it just gives you like one verse a day that you kind of just peel the calendar away and, it, and, and you don't know anything about the context of the verse, just go ahead and throw that away and then maybe get like a Bible reading plan where you learn to read scripture in like, you know, paragraphs and maybe even chapters or you could even read an entire book in one sitting so that you get the context of what you're reading. Rant over. Okay, the importance of the historical context of 1 Thessalonians cannot be overstated. If you want to understand these verses this morning, you have to understand that they were being written to a church that was planted in the soil of persecution. Extreme suffering, bitter and intense persecution. If you forget that, you will not grasp the depth of what Paul is saying to this church. So, why would the Thessalonians, for example, need to be told not to repay evil for evil? Why would they need to be told to give thanks in all circumstances? Why would they need to be told to pray without ceasing? Well, when you remember the context, it makes perfect sense. As a new Christian coming out of pagan worship in the temple, you may not have known if you were a Christian in Thessalonica, for example, that it's not Christ-like to attack your persecutors and to seek revenge. Jesus taught that if a man strikes you on one cheek, you should turn and give him the other cheek. We all know that now. But what if you were a brand new Christian? What if you had only been converted a week ago, a month ago, six months ago, and you were in Thessalonica and someone came and attacked one of your family members for belonging to the way? Would you know that you're not supposed to respond in kind and repay evil for evil? Maybe not. Here comes Paul to remind, to be a good pastor, to teach, and to reinforce some of these fundamentals of the faith for these young Christians in the church at Thessalonica. We're going to talk about those fundamentals together this morning. I've got four points for you, all once again just kind of drawn directly from the text. So note takers, here they are. Point number one, bless your persecutors. Point number two, rejoice in suffering. Point number three, pray without ceasing. And point number four, give thanks in all circumstances. Point number one, bless your persecutors. Um, this is not a new teaching. Uh, it's not unique to Paul. It's not even unique to Jesus. This is something that's 
throughout the entire testimony of Scripture. The Old and the New Testaments both speak with one unified voice about how God's people should respond to those who wish them evil. So let's just walk through some of these verses together. Cohen, let's go ahead and bring them up on the screen, buddy. We're just going to walk through them just so we can see. Starting in Exodus 23. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall surely bring it back to him again. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying under its burden, and you would refrain from helping it, you shall surely help him with it. Maybe a little modern translation would be, if you see your enemy with a blown out tire on the side of the road, and you're inclined to drive through the puddle and splash him as he tries to fix it, well, you should probably stop and help him to change his tire. Leviticus 19.18, you shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Proverbs 20, verse 22, do not say, I will avenge this evil. No, wait on the Lord and he will save you. Now this next verse, Romans, uh, out of Romans 12, uh, pay careful attention to this verse because we're going to be talking about it more at length here in a few minutes. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. That word never is significant. But leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil but overcome evil by good. Next, Matthew 5, 44, straight from the mouth of Jesus. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. 1 Peter 3, 9, do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing, because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. And then, of course, you have this morning's text, verse 15, See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Scripture is pretty clear. Should Christians repay evil for evil? We all shake our heads. No, we shouldn't. This scripture teaches us two things about how Christians should respond to persecution. The first thing that that it teaches us is in the negative, that we should not respond in kind. Okay, this tells us what we should not do. Uh, There are a lot of reasons why Christians shouldn't repay evil for evil, the reason why we shouldn't, a lot of reasons why we shouldn't respond in kind. But the main reason, uh, I think in scripture, the one that's most heavily weighted, which is the one I want to emphasize this morning, is that we shouldn't seek revenge because we should rather entrust ourselves to God. What we just read in Romans 12, when I told you, pay attention, we're going to be coming back to this. Okay, we're coming back to it. In Romans 12, Paul is very clear to say the reason why you shouldn't do this is because God is the one who will have the final say in matters of justice. If you think, man, i got to find some way to make sure justice is executed on this person or on these people or on this group or on this organization for what they have done to me or my family, my church, God says, you're thinking about this the wrong way. God says, I have not designed you to be a vengeance taker. You are not the ultimate arbiter of justice. You're fallen. You're frail. You're human. You're going to mess this up. Even if your anger is a righteous anger, the way you execute that righteous anger, it's almost certain that you're not going to do it in such a way that glorifies me. You're not in the vengeance and justice business in a sense. Leave that to me. I am the one who will ultimately take care of these things. And if we belong to God, then we should believe him when he tells us this. The second thing that this verse teaches us about how we should respond to persecution is in the positive. So the negative is don't respond in kind. The positive is we must respond in love. Now, if you paid careful attention to that long list of verses we just read together, you will have noticed that Paul never, or excuse me, any of those authors never stop by saying don't repay evil for evil. They always go on to say and also repay evil with good. So let's just go back through those verses one more time with this in mind. Got them on the screen there, Cohen? Uh-oh, Cohen. Ah, okay, you did it, man. You saved the day. I was worried about you. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall surely bring it back to him again. So not only just, you know, don't kill his donkey, 
help the donkey, okay? If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying under its burden and you would refrain from helping it, you shall surely help him with it. Next, you shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people. That's in the negative. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's in the positive. Next, do not repay anyone evil for evil. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Next. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Yeah. You see, friends, the goal for us as Christians is not merely to see that those who perpetrate evil are punished. Our goal is to see them redeemed. Our, our goal is to see them brought back to the right team so that they can be useful for God's glory. I mean, just think about what it would have been like for you if that would have been God's attitude towards you in your sin, your rebellion, and your evil. What if God just would have said, you know what? I'm just going to punish you. I'm just going to execute strict, raw, pure justice on you. Where would you be? But God didn't treat you like that. God said, no, that's what you deserve but instead, I'm going to call you to myself. God's main aim in dealing with us in our sin is not simply to punish us, but to redeem us. His chief desire is not to break us, but to heal us and to restore us and to redeem us and to use us for his glory. If that is God's disposition towards us in our wickedness, what should our disposition be towards those who are wicked against us? Thank you. Rather than seeking revenge on the one who does evil, our greatest desire should be to see them transformed into a worker of righteousness, right? We don't just want to kill it. We want to fix it and use them to help us on our own team. And one of the main ways that we can do that is by overcoming their evil with our love, the love of God that flows through us. You know, it's, it's kind of like, you know, if you want to get rid of the darkness, what do you do? You replace it with the light. Now, before moving on from this, uh, I want you guys to notice something specific about Paul's wording here with this command. He says that we must do good to one another and to everyone. Now, he could have just stopped with one another. He could have stopped there, but he didn't. He said, and to everyone. Why? Well, because our tendency is to be tribalistic, right? Our tendency is to do good to those who are with us and to withhold goodness from those who may fall outside of our boundary markers, right? And that's not just, you know, Christians in the world. That's like, you know, within my little circle of Christians who have these particular doctrinal views, I'm going to do them good. And anybody who's slightly divergent from those views, I don't care about them at all. I don't want to do them good. I want to do them evil. It's a very sad state of affairs in the life of the church, something that I've fallen victim to and that we should be trying to kill any chance we get that impulse and tendency. But Paul says that we should seek the good of all people. In our scripture reading this morning, uh, Jesus said this, For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust. What you see here from the mouth of Jesus is that God, even though he is a perfectly righteous God, he's completely just and he will punish evil, in this life, he still gives his blessings and kindnesses in a number of different ways to people who don't deserve it. Uh, the rain here is, especially if you were in the ancient Near East, a blessing. You know, you live in a dry, parched land that needs the rain to survive. The evil person doesn't deserve the rain, but God loves them better than what they deserve. And then Jesus goes on from that, from the example of God, to talk about how we should live in light of that. He says, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And, and pointing out the tax collectors, he's basically saying, don't the most worthless, non-integrity, fake Christian people in the world do this? Then he says, and if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Yeah, that's the piercing question. If you just love those who love you, 
What's so special about that? That's what the world does, right? We got the Super Bowl coming up. I know in Alabama, we don't really care about NFL football. I don't know anything about any football, but let me try to enter into the world of you sports fanatics out there. We care about college football, right? Yeah, Alabama over here and Auburn over here, you know. I've been to some churches where I'm surprised they don't have them split right down the middle, you know. All the Auburn fans on the left, all the Alabama fans on the right. And it makes sense in that world that the Alabama fans stick together and the Auburn fans stick together too. In politics, you know the Republicans take care of the Republicans and the Democrats take care of the Democrats. And the Libertarians, they just have to stick together because there's so few of them. They're just fighting to survive. But none of that is surprising. What is surprising is when a Republican or a Democrat reaches out across the political aisle in order to serve somebody of a different party, in order to help them in their cause. Not as a form of quid pro quo, yeah, I'll vote for your bill if you vote for my bill coming up next time that we're in session. No. If a Republican genuinely reaches out to a Democrat and says, you know what, I believe in what you're doing, I want to help you, I know it's going to cost me politically, I don't care, I think this is the right thing to do. Now you're saying, Sean, in what world do we live in? I've never heard of such a thing. It does happen, believe it or not. And when it does happen, it blows people's mind. It's so countercultural. Jesus says that that kind of thing should be the normal order of business for Christians. We should be loving people, all people, so well and so frequently that people look at the church and go, what is happening here? I don't understand this. This is not the way this fallen world works. They should be suspicious of us because of how well we love those who are outside of our boundary markers. They should be like, what, what's, what's in it for you? Why are you doing this? I don't understand what's happening here. It just shouldn't make any sense to them. I want you to understand, I just want to harp on this a little bit, how radical of an idea this is. You will not find this teaching in any other religion, philosophy, or worldview. You may be thinking, well, Sean, we live in an age where all we talk about is loving people different than us. You know, it's all about diversity. And, you know, isn't that really kind of what the world is on right now? Isn't that the, you know, the note that they're, they're banging? Uh, not really. Not really. Even in our new lovey-dovey world where tolerance and you know, all those things are the supreme virtues of our age, you will find that people still only tend to love people who are like them. They still tend to only serve people that are within their boundary markers. I shouldn't have to remind you that those who, in fact, claim to be the most tolerant are some of the most intolerant people in our society. So it is truly unique, even amongst those who claim that it isn't. I know that as the world begins to press in on the church, as you're perhaps already feeling, our temptation will be to grow more inward-facing, you know, to really just huddle up, to protect our own, and to shun anyone else who tries to break into that huddle. Anyone who we feel like might try to seek to do us harm, we feel like we have to band together, keep them as far away as it's possible, don't give them any love just so we can protect ourselves. We cannot give into that impulse and tendency. We must remember not only the teaching, but also the example of Jesus and not let that happen. We must remember that it is our Christian duty. It is a command to love those who oppose us. Point number two, rejoice in suffering. The next uh, command in this morning's text is that we rejoice always, right? Go back to the text with me. Just two words, verse 16, rejoice always. I take Paul here when he uses this word always to be referring to suffering, in the midst of suffering. It wouldn't make much sense for Paul to use always when he's talking about things that are going well, when you have every reason to rejoice. That's like loving people that love you. It just, it's really easy and it doesn't need to be said. It's just kind of what you do naturally. You rejoice when there's a bunch of stuff to rejoice about. Now, what Paul is saying here is that we must rejoice even in the times when the world would look at us and expect us to be devoid of joy, when they'd expect us to be grumbling and complaining and despondent. Those are the times when we should be rejoicing. 
And like Paul's previous command, this teaching is ubiquitous in Scripture. So let's look at some of those examples together. Cohen? Romans chapter 5, verse 3. Not only that, but we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Philippians 1.29. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. James 1.2. Consider it pure joy. Pure joy. That's not an over-translation from the Greek. Pure joy, my brothers, when you encounter trials of many kinds. Philippians 4.4. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. That was written by someone who is sitting in chains for the gospel. Acts 5.41. When the apostles were suffering persecution. And they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. They were shamed, and they rejoiced about it. Now, this command is kind of a strange one. Anytime there's a command for us to experience a particular emotion, it feels like that doesn't jive, right? It's like oil and water. You can't command me to feel something. I can't make my heart produce these emotions. How can I find joy in the midst of pain? How can I rejoice in the midst of suffering? Well, some people try to answer that in a way that I think is less than helpful. They'll point to a verse like James 1-2, which we just looked at. Can we pull it back up on the screen? Uh, I think it should be the next slide, Cohen. Yeah. And they'll look at that word consider, and they'll say, see, we, we shouldn't actually feel joy in the midst of suffering. That's silly. You could never do that. Instead, you just need to consider it as joy. You need to look at the benefits, and even if you don't feel it, you should just say, okay, it's, it is joy, but you're really just pretending. Uh, without getting into like a massive word study on this, let me just say, like, I think people who would have that understanding of a verse like this are putting way too much emphasis on one word, which can be variously interpreted and is somewhat ambiguous. And instead of doing that, they should put more uh, emphasis on the other scriptures, which speak just very plainly about the fact that the joy that we have should be a real joy, not a feigned joy, not a faked joy, not a fake it till you make it kind of a thing. So we just read in scripture from Romans 15, and it doesn't say pretend like you're full of joy when it suffer. It says rejoice. When we read in Acts chapter 5, just go back one verse, Cohen. Go back to Acts chapter 5. Yeah, it doesn't say, and they departed from the presence of the council pretending to be full of joy, knowing that, you know, good stuff can happen when you suffer. No, it says they departed from the council rejoicing. That is, they were so full of joy in their hearts that it came spilling up out of their mouths. The joy that Christians should experience in the midst of suffering is a very real joy. But that still doesn't answer the question of how. How can we experience joy in the midst of suffering? And I think the answer can be found in a number of verses, some that we looked at, one or two that we didn't. I'm going to give you, these are th subpoints here, okay? I'm going to give you three ways that we can have joy in the midst of suffering. The first way is by remembering that suffering sanctifies us. Let's look at Romans chapter 5, verse 3 again. Yeah. Not only that, but we also rejoice in our sufferings. Why? How? How? He's about to tell us the answer. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance. As a muscle must endure pain in order to grow big and strong, so too our souls must endure suffering in order to fortify us to make us big and strong of heart against the world, the flesh, and the devil. Suffering produces perseverance. But that's not the only thing it produces. It produces all kinds of different things. It teaches us about our frailty as humans. It teaches us dependence on God. It deepens our trust in God. It refines us for the sake of holiness. Suffering is like CBD oil. There's nothing it can't fix. You know, it's like the essential oils. Man, whatever your problem is, suffering, it's going to help you in some way. I'm happy that joke landed. I was worried it wouldn't. It's in my notes. 
when we consider these benefits and how suffering makes us more like Jesus, how can we not find some way to rejoice in the midst of it? In this life, what we should want for ourselves more than anything else is to be like Christ. And when something helps us to be more like Christ, we can rejoice in it, even if it hurts. Number two, suffering serves the body. Philippians 1.14, and because of my chains, that emphasis is there on purpose, because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear, right? That doesn't make sense. You would assume that if a bunch of Christians saw their leader, Paul here, in chains, suffering, headed to probably be crucified or have his head cut off, if they saw that, they would become more timid. They would be more afraid to go out and preach the gospel. But Paul says the exact opposite has happened. Seeing him in prison has emboldened his fellow Christians, and that means the gospel is being preached, people are being converted, disciples are being made, and the church is being built up into the fullness of the image of Christ. Wow. God can use our suffering like that. God used the suffering of the Thessalonians like that. Do you remember earlier in the book of Thessalonians how we read that their example of love and perseverance had resounded out to all the churches in Macedonia? Yeah, they were an example and they strengthened other churches when they heard about how the Thessalonian church was enduring persecution. How can you not rejoice in that? You're sitting there, you're suffering, it, it hurts it's terrible, you don't want to be going through it, but you know that somehow, some way, your brothers and sisters in Christ are going to be built up by what you're going through, you can find joy. Number three, the final way, actually it's not the final way, the final way for this sermon, that we can rejoice in suffering is because suffering displays the worth of God. Philippians 1.29, for it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Notice the language that Paul uses here and the language that Paul does not use here. He says that this has been granted to you. It's a gift. He doesn't say, hey, listen, I know you guys signed up for this Jesus thing, and man, I'm super glad you did. We need you. We're glad you're here but this is going to be pretty tough and you're going to hate every second of it and you're going to have to suffer. I'm so sorry, but that's kind of part of the deal. You get the benefits, but you also got to deal with the suffering. That's not what he says. He says it is a privilege, a gift, an honor that has been given to us. Suffering is part of the benefit package of Christianity. Why? Because there is something innately joyful about suffering for that which is worthy. Say that one more time. We can consider this a gift. It is a gift to us because there is something innately joyful, edifying for our souls. Something that builds us up when we suffer for that which is worthy. Imagine with me for a moment a soldier coming home from World War II. He was off fighting the Nazis on the Western Front, and he's been a tour down in Italy fighting the fascists, and he suffered a lot. He lost a leg. At a local homecoming parade, one of his neighbors stopped him, shook his hand, and thanked him for his service and sacrifice. The veteran responded with these words, It was my pleasure to fight for your freedom. Was the war fun for this soldier? Maybe at times, but as someone who's been to war, let me tell you, no. Did it hurt to lose a leg? Yes, tremendously. Did he suffer in war? Terribly. Would he take it back? No. Why? Because he counts it as a joy to suffer for a cause that is so worthy. 
And friends, what could be more worthy than our, of our suffering than the salvation of the nations and the glory of the God who saved us? A God who loved us even when we were his enemies. A God who adopted us and predestined us and sealed us with his Holy Spirit to make sure we make it home. A God who came down to live among us. A God who took our place in death so that we might have life everlasting. A God who took our shame upon his shoulders so that we might have honor and glory with our Father in heaven forever. A God who, when he saves us, calls us to himself by his grace and requires nothing of us in order to go and be with him other than a desire to turn away from sin and to enjoy him and his love. Oh, friends, what is more worthy of our suffering than that? How can you not find joy in suffering for a God like this? If you're here and you're not a Christian and you're just like, you know, I hear what you're saying, I understand those words, but that just doesn't make sense to me. Maybe find someone after service and ask them what it's like to be a Christian. Maybe they can help you understand more. Point number three, pray without ceasing. Just like our two previous points, we see this imperative from Paul is reverberated throughout the rest of Scripture. So let's look at it, starting in Romans 12, verse 12. Oh, we got them all on one slide, huh? A little inconsistency there. Will, come see me in my office tomorrow. Be constant in prayer, Romans 12, 12. Pray at all times in the Spirit with all perseverance, Ephesians 6, 6, 18. Pray about everything, Philippians 4, 6. Continue steadfastly in prayer, Colossians 4, 2. Pray without ceasing this morning's text. Always pray and do not lose heart. Luke 18.1. This point's going to be quick. I'm going to give you three subpoints, three things that I think will help you understand what Paul means when he says to pray without ceasing. The first is that you should pray in such a way that shows your dependence on God. Pray in such a way that shows your dependence on God. On God. Praying without ceasing shows that we know that we need help from outside of ourselves and that we don't just need it once, it's that we constantly need it. You remember from my sermon in the Lord's Prayer where we talked about give us this day our daily bread, we talked about the fact that we need to eat three times a day as one of God's way that reminds us that we need something from outside of ourselves to sustain us. Now you may be thinking, Sean, you don't have to eat three times a day. You could probably like not even eat for a week. Okay, you get the point. Okay, let's not think about food. Let's think about breathing. How long can you hold your breath before you need some more oxygen? Not very long. Different people in the room might have different answers. But the point is, we always need something from outside of ourselves in order to continue to live. When we pray without ceasing, what we're doing is we're, we're acknowledging the fact that that's true. We don't think, okay, I only need God for the really big things. No, you need God for everything and especially for the big things. Number two, pray in such a way that shows your relationship with God. Guys, you cannot bother your God in heaven with your prayers. It's not possible. He delights for you to come to him. Like uh, I talked about a couple weeks ago in a sermon about how like, oh man, as my kids get older, I, I wish that, you know, they were a little bit more dependent on me. I kind of miss that. But then like that same day, one of my kids came up to me and asked me like three questions in a row and I was just like, enough is enough, go to your room, I, just, I can't take this. Right, like my kids, as much as I love them, can bother me. They can come to me with too much stuff. And I'm like, you gotta figure this out on your own. You're eight, go get a job, you know what I'm saying? Like I can't help you with everything, YouTube it, I don't know. Nine, whatever. But, can you get a working permit yet? I don't know. But the point is, is that God never feels that way towards us. God is the one who tells us to pray to him. He delights it when we acknowledge him as the one who can accomplish anything and everything that we could possibly need. So, you know, go to God as often as you think you should. And guess what? More often than that, because you don't, when you, how often you think you should go to him is not as often as you should go to him. That's not in the notes, and I'm about to go off on a trail here, so let's just move on. Number three, pray in such a way that shows your confidence in God. 
Don't just pray one prayer and then give up. You know, I mean, listen, God can move on your behalf. Praying without ceasing, part of that is just going to God, remembering that He does listen and He is fully capable of doing what you need. Now, maybe you're thinking, Sean, this all has to do with persecution. And so I have a question. Why would these Thessalonians who are suffering so tremendously under persecution, why would they need Paul to tell them to pray? I mean, doesn't it make sense that if you're going through really big trials and tribulations like this, wouldn't it make sense that they would just be inclined to pray? Well, let me ask you. In your experience as a Christian, do you often find that your first instinct when you're going through something is to go to God in prayer? Or is it more often that your first instinct is to try to figure out what to do in your own power, according to your own wisdom? Even if it's not you and your own, maybe you want to go and ask advice from a counselor, a friend, a group of people. Well, that's not bad. That's not wrong. In many cases, it's good and we should do more of that. But I'm asking, what is your first instinct? When you're going through an issue in your marriage, when you're struggling financially, when you're battling an addiction, when you're going through whatever it is that you're going through, when you realize that you're going through it, is your first instinct to stop and say, you know what, I need God's help. God, we need to talk. I wish I could say that that was my first instinct all the time, but it's not. More often than not, I give in to my first fleshly instinct. I go and try to fix stuff on my own according to my own power and my own wisdom, and then it fails, and then I try again in my flesh, and it fails again, and then eventually God comes and knocks me on the head with the truth of his word and reminds me, oh, that's right, I should have gone to you first instead of trying to fix this myself. Friends, don't think that just because someone is going through something significant that they're praying about it, even as Christians. That's why we have to remind each other. We have to encourage each other. We have to even build this pattern into our lives. In our elders meetings, you should know that one of our main jobs as elders, we have two jobs, the ministry of the word and prayer. It's crazy when I see like churches that have like 14 page long job descriptions for their pastors. I'm like, all right, listen, I think there's probably some subpoints to that, but I, there can't be many. Ministry of the word and prayer, that's our job. And you would think that that's because, one of our, that's because it's one of our two main job responsibilities that it would just be something we would naturally do. You know what? I don't want to take the chance that uh, what I think that I'll do, I'll just do it. I, I want to have it formalized. So in our elders meetings, we just know anything that we talk about, we're going to pray about it so that there's no question that we do that which we're supposed to do. I would encourage you to find ways to build that kind of pattern in your own lives. Uh, we could talk more about what that looks like. If you have any questions about that, just come talk to me and we'll, we'll chop it up. Uh, by the way, I don't have this in my sermon, but uh, how amazing was the hymn, What a Friend We Have in Jesus, and how fitting is it for the sermon about prayer? If you weren't really paying attention to the words of that song as you were singing it, I'd encourage you to take your service guide and go back and read through it again after the service and just consider uh, the depth and the beauty uh, and the truthfulness of this hymn. If you're wondering why we don't sing a bunch of Hillsong ditties and we sing songs like this, I know that some of them are old and kind of boring to some of us, but guys, people just don't write hymns like this anymore. If they did, we'd sing more newer songs. All right, tangent over. Point number four. I'm going on a lot of rabbit trails this morning. I, let me tighten it up and finish this strong here, okay? Give thanks in all circumstances. Give thanks in all circumstances. What we call the Lord's Supper in our church is uh, in more like high church settings called the Eucharist. Uh, it's called the Eucharist because the Greek word that Jesus used when he was instituting the Lord's Supper is Eucharisteo, right? You can see how we got from that to Eucharist. And it literally means to give thanks. You know, Jesus broke the bread and he gave thanks for it, Eucharisteo. Now, what's really interesting about this Greek word is that it has within itself another word as its root. And that other word is charis, which means grace. So to eucharisteo is to look at something, to see the grace of God in it, to recognize that grace and acknowledge it in thanksgiving back to God. That's what we do every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Now, Jesus was able to 
Eucharisteo, he was able to give thanks for the bread and wine at the Lord's Supper, even though they symbolized his impending suffering and death. Why? How was he able to do that? Because he saw in his death a picture of God's grace for the world. He saw grace in something, and then he gave thanks for it. Now, in this morning's text, Paul tells the Thessalonians that they must eucharisteo in all circumstances. Look back at the text. Verse 18, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So, friends, I've said it before, I'm going to say it again. Sean, what's God's will for my life? I'm going to tell you one thing from Scripture that I know for sure is God's will for your life. It's to, in any circumstance you happen to find yourself in, look for an evidence of grace and thanks God, thank God for what you see there. That is God's will for your life. So don't just give thanks to God when things are going well, but also when things are falling apart. The Thessalonians needed to not only give thanks to God when 10 new people came to Christ and were baptized and added to the number of the church, but they also needed to thank God when there was a mob threatening to drag them all before the city council and run them out of the city and stone them. How can this be true? This is kind of like our second point. How is it possible that we can find joy in the midst of suffering? How is it possible that we can give thanks even in the midst of these various circumstances? Going through a divorce. Friend won't talk to us anymore because we always talk about Jesus. The church is under attack. How can we give thanks to God even in the midst of that? Well, I think the easiest way to answer that question is to look at another verse that Paul wrote in Romans 8, 28. If you have with, your Bibles with me, please turn to Romans 8, 28 through 31. It's also going to be on the screen up here. You know, in general, it's just a good habit to open your Bibles. So if you want to, go ahead and turn to Romans 8, 28 through 31. Paul writes, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Not some things, not just the good things, not just the things that feel like they're working for our good. All things. Cancer, depression, suffering, persecution, you cannot think of something in this world that you can possibly experience as a Christian. As someone who is loved by God and who loves God, you cannot think of something that you can experience that God is not somehow, some way, working together for your good. He goes on, for those who are called according to his purpose. Ah, well now we start to have the, the curtain pulled back a little bit. Why is it working for our good? Well, because ultimately he's using us to accomplish his purposes. That's for another sermon. Verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So now we're starting to see a little bit more, right? One of the, one of the main ways that God, one of the main reasons why God is doing this is because he wants us to be transformed into the image of his son. So he's not going to allow us to experience anything that will not help us to look like Jesus, Everything that he allows us to experience, that he sovereignly coordinates in our lives, he does it that way so that somehow, some way, it will help us to look more like Christ. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers, and those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. Theologians call this uh, the golden chain of salvation. Those whom God chose, that is, those whom God elected, he also predestined, and those whom he predestined, he also calls, and those whom he calls, he glorifies, uh, sanctifies, and those whom he sanctifies, he glorifies. God has a plan for your life that he has had since before the foundations of the world, and that plan is to make you more like Jesus. And he has so ordered the universe down to the tiniest particle in the smallest atom, he has so ordered the universe to accomplish that purpose in your life. 
Sean, how can I give thanks in all circumstances? Because the God of the universe has so ordered your circumstances to make you like Christ. Even if you can't see it, even if you don't understand it, God has told you, this is what I'm doing. So recognize my grace. Acknowledge it back to me, regardless of your circumstances. Before closing, uh, I'd like to say one thing by way of application. This is kind of the main application point of the sermon this morning. This morning's text and the context from which it flows deals heavily with the theme of persecution. And that is something that we very thankfully don't have to deal with very much in the United States. I genuinely praise God for that. You know, there's some Christians, sometimes when I hear them talk about this stuff, I think that like they wish that there was more persecution so that they could feel like, you know, more of a hardcore Christian. Uh, Guys, I praise God that we live in the United States of America where we can come here on a Sunday morning and I can say all this stuff that would probably get me killed in like 50 other countries around the world. So praise God for his grace in our land in this way. Having said that, because we don't face significant persecution, like so many of our brothers and sisters around the world, like so many of our brothers and sisters throughout history, we may be inclined to think that a sermon like this doesn't really apply to us. But it does. We may think that this is not a super practical sermon. You know, how am I going to apply this? Friends, it is. As a matter of fact, this morning's text might apply to you in a very real way and much sooner than you know. The careful student of history will remember that throughout time and especially in recent history, nations tend to experience very rapid and diametrical shifts in both their outlook and policy. That's a, that's a big sentence. Let me just say it one more time. I'll give time for everybody to catch up. The careful student of history will remember that throughout time, and especially in recent history, nations have tended to experience very rapid and diametrical, that is like going the complete opposite way, diametrical shifts in both their outlooks and policy. Said another way, nations can crumble at their very foundations, moral, political, philosophical, religious, in the blink of an eye. Let me give you some examples. France shifted from a monarchy to anarchy to imperial rule in less than 25 years. In less than 50 years, China abandoned its 2,000-year history of imperial rule and was completely overtaken by the monstrosity known as the Communist Cultural Revolution, which left only 100 million dead people in its wake. Now let me give you an example from our own country. In 2008, California passed, and by the way, California, most liberal state in our union, maybe like Vermont's giving them some challenge on that, but if you ask, you know, it's right up there. In 2008, California passed Proposition 8. If you remember Proposition 8, it was an amendment to the state constitution of California which banned same-sex marriage in California. That just doesn't even seem like it's possible now in 2021, but it happened. In 2015, less than 10 years after the passing of Prop 8, the Supreme Court of this United States of America handed down the Obergefell decision which functionally legalized same-sex marriage in all 50 states. Fast forward five years, 2020, or on into 2021, President Joe Biden, in his first week in office, signed a number of executive orders in the name of transgender equality. Under one of his orders, a biological male will now have the right to compete against biological females in high school sports, use the women's locker rooms, and use women's restrooms if they identify as a woman. What was once called a ridiculous slippery slope argument just 10, 15 years ago has become reality by fiat of the highest levels of government in our land. Friends, our country is capable 
of experiencing very, very rapid change in our morals, values, ethics, and religious outlook. Do not think that the freedoms that you now enjoy as a Christian in the United States, do not think that those freedoms are promised to you tomorrow. God has not promised them to you. You have to remember that control is an illusion in this world, and so is something like political stability. Religious freedom may be here today and gone tomorrow in the United States. We may feel free to practice our faith today, but things may look very different in the lifetime of our children, and perhaps even in our own lifetime. So let these verses from 1 Thessalonians prepare you for what I believe is something that is almost certainly coming a time of Christian persecution in the West. Do not say it could never happen here. It could. And it probably will. So if that day comes, my prayer is that this church would just be prepared to endure that suffering with a kind of wisdom that we see from Scripture, like texts from this morning. May we respond to those who seek to do us evil in love and so seek to overcome their evil with the gospel. May we remember Romans 8, 28 through 31, which teaches us that there's always a reason to give thanks to God. And may we do all this with a sense of joy as we communicate with our Father in heaven who has counted us worthy to suffer for his name. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we are not worthy but you've made us worthy. You've united us to your son, Jesus Christ. His righteousness has become ours. Our sin has been completely disposed of. Father, we praise you for what you have done for us. We want to talk about it constantly. We want to sing about it. We want to pray about it. We want to read scripture about it. We want to listen to sermons that talk about it at length. And Father, we want to remember it and carry it with us as we go back out into this world. Help our senses to not be dulled. Help our spiritual affections to not be bludgeoned by the effects of the fall. Father, would you be with us? Protect us, keep us, guide us, and uplift us. Amen.